What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Kofinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. My guest in this episode is Renee DeResta. Renee is the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, where she investigates the spread of narratives across social media and how actors leverage these networks and the information ecosystem to exert various forms of influence. She works directly with policymakers to help them understand the nature of the challenge that these platforms pose and what we can do about it, which is exactly why I asked her to come onto the podcast today. Because the recent Twitter files revelations have presented us with yet another opportunity to have a badly needed conversation about the power of these platforms, whether or not we feel comfortable with that power in the hands of a private company or anyone for that matter, and how we wanna regulate them, what exactly we can do to bring transparency and accountability to the content moderation process so that we get outcomes that are more in line with what we want and that don't cater to our worst impulses and desires. For those of you who are new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. If you want access to the second hour of today's conversation, as well as the transcript and intelligence report to this episode, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and sign up to one of our three content tiers. All subscribers get access to our premium feed, which you can listen to on your phone using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. If you wanna join in on the conversation and become a member of the Hidden Forces Genius Community, which includes Q&A calls with guests, access to special research and analysis, in-person events and dinners, you can do that on our subscriber page. And if you still have questions, feel free to send an email to info at hiddenforces.io and I or someone from our team will get right back to you. And with that, please enjoy this incredibly timely and important conversation with my guest, Renee DeResta. Renee DeResta, welcome to Hidden Forces. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure having you on, Renee. So before we get started, I'd love to know a little bit more about you, your background, and how you got to do what you're doing now, which I think is, you're one of those people that like kind of does a lot of things. You're at Stanford, but I'm sure you have a bunch of side gigs too. Yeah, this kind of was a, a side thing for me, actually. It's kind of funny how I got here. I went to school for computer science and political science. I minored in Russian. You know, I just had all these interests and I didn't, I really candidly didn't know what I wanted to do. I graduated and I went to Jane Street, which is, nobody had ever heard of it before SBF, but here we are. So I was a trader there for about seven and a half years. I was an emerging markets derivatives trader, market maker, you know, all that stuff. I uh, left in 2011. I kind of wanted to go back into tech. I just felt like as fun as derivatives arbitrage was, it hadn't been where I'd really seen my life going. I thought maybe I'd go to grad school, but I wound up taking a job in venture capital moving out to San Francisco. So I worked for Tim O'Reilly's VC fund, O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures. I really loved it because it let me meet people. My last job had been meeting nobody, just doing spreadsheet, you know, kind of... um, Quant work. And then all of a sudden I had this job where I was talking to people, hearing all these ideas. I thought it was a it was a great place to be. Around that time, I also got married and had a baby. So 2013, I had my first kid. I will say <laughs> that the transition from Quanti Wall Street work to venture capital was really, really different. And I started feeling like my 
quantitative skills were all like kind of atrophying. Like all I did was do coffees and talk to people about their visions. So I started taking a bunch of data science classes and doing things just to feel like I was still kind of stimulating that part of my brain. And I got really interested in the topic of vaccination rates in California because all of a sudden I had to put my kid on these lists to get him into um, preschool. So I pulled down 10 years of California Department of Public Health data and I was just, you know, I was making like kind of looking at trend analysis over time. And I felt like we'd really hit this weird place in California where people were just being opted out of vaccines. This is actually relevant to the story. So I leave venture capital. I go and I co-found a company in supply chain logistics, looking at derivatives for commodity traders. Again, it sounds very weird, but I was really interested in supply chain efficiency. I had done a lot of hardware investments when I was a VC, and I felt like there was this new world opening up as people were manufacturing in other places, but a lot of the supply chain problems had not been solved. And so my interest was actually in container shipping and in making that market more efficient. So while I'm doing my container shipping day job, I also at the same time become very, very interested in the vaccination problem in California again, because the Disneyland measles outbreak happens. And I really felt like we'd entered this weird world where the conversation online, which was stridently negative towards vaccination, if you, if you searched any hashtag related to vaccines, it was all anti-vaxxers. And this was, again, about MMR and autism and the sort of conspiracy theories about that at the time, the kind of lie that, that would never die. So I had my day job in which I was doing this supply chain stuff. And then my night, you know, my kind of night hustle, if you will, where I was just kind of mapping the ecosystem, trying to understand how the anti-vaccine movement had become this force. And in the course of doing that, I started looking at things like recommendation engines, manipulation of Twitter trends, ways in which the public conversation was being shaped in a particular way. I was, you know, again, because my uh, time in VC had me on social platforms quite a bit, you know, every VC had to blog for a while there and I had to think of interesting things to say about markets and such. I'd gotten to know a lot of people at Facebook and Twitter and I started periodically sending notes just saying, you know, why is your recommendation engine pushing me this group? You know, <laughs> why is it trying to get me to join anti-vaccine parenting groups? Like, what is the purpose of this? It seems like you're doing this because this is a highly active group, but is that really the metric by which we should be proactively recommending content to people? So I became kind of something of an activist actually on that front, just arguing in favor of what I thought was more responsibility in design, more responsibility in curation and recommendations. And through a series of absolutely bizarre events, I started writing about this. I, I pitched an article to Wired. Wired took the article. I was documenting the spread of anti-vaccine networks and communities, some of the kind of earliest data analysis that made it out to, to the public, you know, trying to tell the story to, to the people. And the Obama administration reached out and they said, hey, we see you're doing this work on anti-vaccine activists. And this is early 2015. We're trying to understand the spread of ISIS narratives on Twitter. That was a thing that was very much also part of the public conversation at the time. And they said, you know, we're inviting some people from different disciplines to come down and, and look at this problem. I mean, what, what is the dynamics of ISIS on Twitter? And would you come and participate in that project? And it's very hard to say no to that. I said, you know, I know, I know nothing about terrorism. That's not my area. But I do think this is an interesting question, right? How does public opinion get formed? How do people join online communities? How do inadvertent nudges shape the direction of people's lives on these platforms? And so I did go down and that was around October 2015. That was when the Bataclan massacre happened and a number of very, very high profile events were happening around ISIS uh, at the time that we were doing that work. And I felt like this is an interesting 
shift where what's happening on social media has profound impacts in the outside world. And I'd gotten into it because I was a mom upset at, you know, the 30% MMR uptake rates in local preschools. But the bigger dynamic of how do people form opinions online? How do people radicalize? How do people join communities? How do people make sense of the world, come to consensus? We had this new system for that. And I was just fascinated by how it worked. So that was what kind of took me into this. I eventually felt like I was spending more time on my side hustle than my company, which is always an indication that you should step out, right? And so uh, that was what I did. And now I am at Stanford. That was a great introduction. You could just <laughs> you're just basically a passionate nerd. So, yeah. a few observations. One, I love how your background actually there is no discrete path that got you from there to here, but if you look at you minored in Russian, you said I think you said you minored or you majored. Tim Minor. O'Reilly, I loved him. He's been on the show before. He was one of our first guests and we did an episode on he had written a book on map making which is so central to this show, which is about building better models of the world because you can't actually engage with reality as it is. You have to have a model to work through it, everything. We don't really know what reality is. That's a whole another conversation that is relevant to this, and maybe we'll get to it. And your, your interest in data, supply chain logistics, and then the whole vaccine and Facebook. And you know, let me just ask you about, let's talk a second about ISIS, because I think this is actually relevant. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because I feel like we're in this political moment today in 2022 where everyone puts everything through this prism of domestic politics and the frame of the woke libtard left and the alt-right red-pilled kind of, you know, Trumpers. And it's so important to also remember that like not everything on social media is just about a political frame, that there are serious foreign threats that are impacting us. And I know that the Russian one is one that we can't possibly agree on anymore because it's become so political. But ISIS, I think, is one that, you know, I don't know anyone that would say, well, we shouldn't ban videos of ISIS beheadings, which gets us to an important, I think, recognition that I would love to have at the beginning of this conversation, which is I think that most people can agree that there needs to be content moderation on social media. And the question is, how do we go about doing that in a way that actually makes sense for people, that is epistemically defensible, and which is politically palatable. I think you're right. One of the things that I've been doing recently is going back to the media coverage around that time. I've been working on a book project, and this is, you know, kind of provided me with an opportunity to go back and reread where the public conversation was at this time. And there were a lot of articles, a lot of articles, including by, you know, really high profile entities like the EFF, that were arguing that the beheading videos should clearly come down, right? That violated basic policies around violence and gore and things like that. Platform policies are really nuanced. Unfortunately, they're kind of cobbled together. They aggregate, they change over time. It's not like a fully formed, you know, magical policy was developed and, you know, sprung forth from the heads of the policy people early on. It's that it is iterative and it is reactive. And so a lot of the early conversations around ISIS, and you can go back and read the media on this, we're arguing that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, and we should take down the violent content, but who were we to take down the fanboys? And who were we to take down the sort of amplifier accounts? And this is a really interesting question because there's an articulation at the time that addressing the ISIS problem leads to a slippery slope. And so there are many people who possibly still hold that opinion, but the challenge was this, you know, there began to be these people who would declare allegiance to ISIS on social media 
and then go shoot up a place or rent a truck and drive it through a crowd. You know, there, there were a lot of these dynamics that started to happen. The Bataclan attacks, you know, what happened in Paris. The women who were being kind of recruited, groomed, if you will, by ISIS fighters who would find them on Twitter, talk to them on Twitter, move them into a messaging app and entice them to leave their homes and come marry jihadis. And so all of this was happening at that time. And I think that there has been, as you say, a reprocessing of the social media conversation around moderation through the context of the U.S. culture war. But in a kind of this sort of connects to what we've been trying to do at SIO, the Internet Observatory actually started and because in large part because we felt that not enough people were looking outside. So the first election work that we did was on Taiwan and looking at how China would process the Taiwan election and would they interfere. We looked at Poland and would, you know, both domestic uh, kind of factions within Poland and as well as Russia and other entities interested in the outcome, to what extent would they interfere? And as it became clear that you know, the the U.S. got progressively worse, I would say, over that the sort of three-year period that, that we've been in existence. But originally, the goal was always to say, what are the ways in which actors are abusing this system? Is it possible to come up with some rubric of harms or threat models that are not focused on U.S. domestic policies at all, but are instead recognize the fact that these are global platforms with global impact? Yeah, again, so much to to talk about. The thing I wrote down when you started to give your answer, when you said one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So yes, first of all, that is true. And yeah. you can absolutely make the argument that from the British's standpoint, the revolutionaries in 1776 were terrorists. And this is where you can't escape the moral dilemma. And I think the kind of radical moral relativism that leads to the answer of, well, if you ban ISIS, it's a slippery slope. I think speaks to the fact that we're in a place in American society today where we don't seem to have a shared notion of who we are and what's important to us and what makes us Americans. What do we care about? What does it mean to live a virtuous life? Not that these things were ever like, you know, clearly articulated, but there was a sense of a common, not just a common epistemic reality, but a common moral reality, that we had a normative framework that we were all walking around with pretty much. And, you know, again, like this conversation, I don't want to take us to the philosophical part of the conversation, you know, so early on because we'll never get out. What I want to actually do is try to focus us on the specific story of the Twitter files, which is kind of why I wanted to bring you on here and use that as an avenue to talk about the issues of the problem of social media. Before I ask you about that, maybe the last kind of specific question I want to ask is, what do you think people get wrong when they think about what social media is and what the nature of the problem of social media is? Yeah, that's a great question. I was trying to think a little bit about some of the different facets of moderation that all get rolled up into one and I, and how... <laughs> The framing of moderation itself as like a bunch of hall monitors who, you know, hate freedom is uh, has become in some communities the dominant characterization. So there are a lot of things that roll into trust and safety in the conversation, you know, moderation conversation online. First, there are things that are demonstrably illegal, right? So that's the sort of child uh, exploitation materials. Terrorist content is, you know, again the obviously the violence videos are kind of held separately. Incitement to violence, of course, is also held aside. But then after you get past that, you start to get into the thornier questions. So even as the ISIS conversation 
was unfolding, there was, you might recall also the kind of Gamergate was one of the other big issues that was happening on Twitter in the 2014-2015 timeframe. And that tied into notions of brigading and harassment. Remind me what Gamergate was again? It was um, briefly. Oh boy, the <laughs> trying to remember all the specific details, but there was a allegation that a journalist had been unfair in a review of a game because she had some sort of romantic relationship with one of the other parties involved. And this person had allegedly cheated on an ex-boyfriend who had written a whole long kind of article alleging that uh, I think her games were being reviewed by people who she was having romantic relationships with. And so on sort of one side of the kind of argument from the people who were really outraged about this was that this was a debate about ethics and journalism. But what it translated into was quite a lot of harassment of some of the women who were involved in the broader story. And the ways in which the brigading and the threats, uh, all of a sudden people, I think, began to realize that the internet could reach you, right? And the feeling of uh, a whole lot of people in your mentions, screaming at you, threatening you, and sometimes doing things like doxing, like posting your home address and, and various things like that, led some of these women to have to leave their homes. They felt very under siege. They felt very under threat. And there didn't seem to be a clear policy guideline in place to address that problem. And there were a lot of, you know, again, this brigading and harassment thing. You might remember also at the time, Twitter's tools for users to block and mute in mass weren't, they didn't really exist. So it placed a lot of onus on the targets of those mobs. I think it also showed people that online mobs could silence their targets, right? So this was an interesting dynamic also in which free speech and you know, the argument that they were just speaking freely, they were just criticizing these people because of their output or their commentary or their opinions, but that the free speech of the people in the brigade was the important speech to consider. And then as people were being pushed out of the conversation because they felt that they were being targeted and threatened, there were some interesting debates about, well, what about the freedom of assembly, right? It was also sort of a First Amendment, right? Your right to be in a conversation at all. And this does tie in in some ways to our notion of social media as a public sphere, because there are kind of time, place, and manner restrictions on speech in the real world that are not necessarily related to whether it violates the First Amendment, but whether it sort of disturbs the peace or targets an individual. And so there are ways in which we have norms and local laws that shape that exchange in the real world. It would be very strange for people to you know, form a literal physical mob and walk around a target screaming at them in the real world. This is not a behavior that we tolerate. But because this is happening online, that question of where is the line with the speech versus harassment became very much a somewhat subjective, you know, challenge in policymaking on social platforms. How do we think about your right to speak, your right to participate in a conversation, and also the rights of the target of that speech in that moment? So this is where you start to see Gamergate come into play. And interestingly, some of the first real actions that we see in which Twitter takes down accounts, there was a very high profile takedown in I think it was um, it was mid-2016, maybe July 2016, where Leslie Jones, the Black actress who was at the time in the Ghostbusters movie, becomes the, you know, the focus of one of these groups of very, very mm, angry I people. And they both impersonate her and they also send her really disgusting pictures and things like that. And she leaves Twitter temporarily. And that's where you see Jack Dorsey reach out to her on Twitter, actually asking to have a conversation about this. And then Milo Yiannopoulos 
is uh, loses his account, right? He's, he's permanently banned from Twitter as a result of this. So I think, again, in this sort of conversation around it, a lot of it is processed as if it was purely political speech, but that was not really the dynamic that was taking shape in that time as you see Twitter begin to shift its moderation policies towards recognizing that brigading is is very much a a risk to the other person's speech as well and where the, where the balances and trade-offs in that conversation. Yeah, again, so much to unpack there. I just want to, well, I guess a few things. First of all, I want to, as many people as possible to listen to this conversation and not switch off, but I do think that you have to approach it with good faith, and if you can't do that, then you can't do that. I do think that, as you point out, there are clearly cases which I think are evidence for the need to engage in in levels of moderation. And part of that stems just from the fact that lived reality as a human being in the world is very different than the reality that exists in a digitally intermediated universe. And that also depends on the interface. So if we were all running a three-dimensional social media environment where it's virtual reality and we're walking around as avatars or we're moving around two-dimensional avatars, the need to moderate content and to restrict speech is going to be dramatically different and much closer to the real world that we live in. So I think that, you know, that's important to recognize that we're dealing with a very different world. And so like just thinking about things in terms of censorship or free speech, the way we normally think about it, isn't actually accurate. So I think we are dealing with something that really needs to be, I guess, dealt with, to use the same word. Can I add one more yes, thing really quickly? Because I'm realizing as I was um, trying to recall all the details of Gamergate, that wasn't an area that I personally did research into, so it was a little bit hazy. But the other area, though, that I was going to touch on that people really get very upset about is the question of what is often now called mis- and disinformation, right? And that is the other area where the moderation conversation comes into play in, in a very, I think, important way. And so you have this illegal stuff, then you have the sort of harassment, trust and safety, people's experience of the internet as it finds them kind of stuff. And then the third band where there is, I would I would say actually there has been some scope creep, is in the mis- and disinformation conversation, because that's where you get to the who is the arbiter of truth and who decides what we see part of the conversation. And so that is wholly separate, I would argue, from a lot of the harassment stuff. They intersect in you know, unfortunate ways where people who hold one opinion about COVID harass people who hold another opinion about COVID and, and, and that sort of dynamic. Uh, we even see this now with long COVID communities getting very angry at people in the medical establishment who have been very, you know, tried to present fact-based opinions about COVID that disagree with this community. And, and you know, you even see, again, these, these fights that really transcend politics. But again, the norms of online engagement, I think, as you were just noting, are not the same as the norms of offline engagement. And so where we might have a more civil conversation or debate, if you were looking at the person, that really kind of breaks down. So even if you're trying to argue about the truth of a thing or come to a consensus about the thing, the toxicity of the online discourse in a lot of ways, I think, impacts our ability to do that. It makes everything feel very, very, very high stakes and tribal. So I love that you brought up misinformation and disinformation because that's hugely important and it's something that I want us to discuss. Maybe this is a good time now to do a couple of things. The first is to put forward a framing for talking about how the, quote, left, the right, and how the two sides see this issue, and then also for us to have a conversation about what each of us thinks really matters here. And I think it's also important perhaps to acknowledge maybe our own biases and 
where we come from on this issue. So let me say what I think, how the left sees this. I think the left sees this largely, first of all, I think the, the left in America, when I say the left, I think it's they're institutionalists. They see themselves as guardians of the institutions. I also think that they see themselves as being the ones in power, in authority. I think there is a kind of moral assuredness. They think that they're in, they're morally in the right in a way that I don't know if the right necessarily feels that way. And so I feel like they see themselves as the guardians and their job is to kind of set the rules and they know what's best. And I even felt this in when I was listening to a law, because I think Lawfare's, uh, it's a Lawfare is a really great podcast, but it, I think it's clearly kind of comes from this perspective in a very intellectual way. And a recent podcast they had that I was listening to right before I, I jumped on this call with you, they were debating the deplatforming of Donald Trump. And just listening to that, just kind of the way that they were talking about it, I felt like that sort of captures what I'm describing here, which is there is a kind of sense of like, we're the adults in the room. So that's kind of where the left is coming from on this. And I think they're much more focused on the misinformation problem, protecting, you know, the small minority groups, et cetera. Where I feel like the right comes from this is, first of all, I think the right has a sense of aggrievement. I think also they feel like they're outside of the power structure. I think that there's a kind of countercultural element to them. And because they feel like they're not in power somehow, that the media doesn't represent them, they're also very concerned about censorship. And so I think that's kind of the way I see the framing. And in personally speaking, I try genuinely not to, I think more of my friends are on the right in my own world, but I would say that for a while, for the last several years, I couldn't stand the woke left, so to speak. And in the last year or so, I felt that way about the right. So I find myself getting into much more arguments about people that are constantly making, apologizing for what is misinformation, disinformation, not being able to really hold two ideas in their heads at once. That was my best attempt, Renee, to kind of do what I said I was going to try to do. I don't know if it was any good, but I'd love for you to try and put forward what you think that framing is, because I, I think it's useful for people that are listening, because there are so many biases here that uh, it's hard for people to really uh, listen sometimes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think so. I would say my politics generally have skewed center left for a long time, but center right on education. And, you know, I was really active in my community around school reopenings and things like that during the pandemic. I have three little kids and so I do have, you know, very, very strong opinions about some of the things that happened during COVID, which I try to express constructively, you know. <laughs> I think there's a lot in what you said. You know, my friend group is actually pretty split, I would say. And I feel fortunate to be able to say that. But they are, I would say, still mostly institutionalists, even those who are conservative. Some libertarian, but but mostly still institutionalists. I would say, I do think that institutionalist divide, I, I hesitate to say even divide because I'm like institutionalist versus what, you know? <laughs> People that want to tear the system down. I think there's a strong element of that on the right, that they want to burn it down. Absolutely. And this is why I can't get there most of the time because it's this weird accelerationism where I'm like, okay, you burn it down and then what happens? Like, what is the what is the magic by which things reconstitute themselves? Most people haven't thought that far through. And I think there's also an element of, there's a kind of infantile anger, kind of like I'm angry and I'm going to have a pout and I don't really care. And I'm just angry. And it's not a constructive energy, I think. No, it's not. It does come from aggrievement and 
which I, I do, I will say, I do think kind of social media tribalism really perpetuates that aggrievement. It lets people really sort of stew in that aggrievement. I think there's actually, you know, there's, there's design reasons, but, you know, reasons why that happens. And we can talk about that later, you know, just ways in which we can, even holding moderation aside, just think about the ways in which we are put into, you know, it's not the public square, it's the arena, you know, <laughs> everything you see is, you know, designed to hit you in an emotional place. And I think that, for some people, it creates an exhaustion and they eventually kind of step out and I think get to, you know, where you are with it, where the recognition that warring about woke versus anti-woke, you know, it's really a very online warring too. It rarely translates into, okay, what is the policy that you want to see in the world? What is the curriculum that you want in your kids' schools? How do we handle some of these nuanced issues? What is the what is the regulation we want to see on the platforms? You know, what what should the platform have done? in case X, Y, or Z? What are you positing? What is the policy framework that you're envisioning? What is the design change that makes this better? And so so I have tried to be constructive in that regard, while also recognizing, you know, I'm human. And when I see things that pop up on Twitter, I kind of jokingly refer to trending topics as bait, but it's really it's really not a joke. It's really what it is. Where I see a, a keyword, you know, it pushes me something that has 2,000 tweets. And inevitably, it's about like San Francisco local politics or something. And I'm like, damn those people, you know, <laughs> I too need to weigh in on this. <laughs> and the interesting thing there is that it wasn't even really a trend. It was like 2,000 tweets. That's not a trend. That's not something that we all need to be paying attention to. But in that moment, I do. Right. And I think that making people realize the extent to which that happens maybe is a is a first step forward that I periodically get friends who are on the right who send me a thing you know in a signal message or something and they're very very angry about it and they say like how is this possible what do you think about this you know as a lefty and and I always like find the characterization funny but I'm like okay let me engage with this and I would say maybe 8 out of 10 times I can say honestly like I did not even see this you have to understand that mm. the things moving through your outrage bubble and the things moving through a more left-leaning outrage bubble are absolutely divergent at this point, unless they hit the point where a sufficient number of people yell about them on Twitter, and then it comes together. But there are these moments where you know, some... Mm-hmm. random nut did something on some random social platform and you know the one small faction of the internet is wildly aggrieved about it and nobody else can see it and that's where i think the reason the moderation question remains interesting for social media in particular is that everybody has been on very large platforms that is our experience of social media as a society not only in the us but elsewhere And as we move towards these arguments around, is the future more decentralized? I think the answer is yes. And we've been seeing that trend happen for a while. But I think that that's sad, actually. (laughs) I think it's really sad because then it just means that not only are we not seeing the same little outrage machine happening on the various facets of the the platforms we're all on, but we're even further disintegrated. We're, We're even further disconnected from each other as we move into platforms that are designed for us or designed with our norms in mind for whatever, you know, whatever your your tribal definition of us is. So that's where I think that inability to come to consensus, that constant loggerheads is actually one of the the real key problems that social media has exacerbated. I don't know that I'd call it echo chambers, right? The social science research on that suggests that it's not a problem of not seeing other information. It's possibly, in fact, a problem of seeing the most highly toxic or highly controversial or most, you know, intense culture war issues through two different lenses on one platform that creates that arena-like dynamic. Again, so many things to talk about here. 
So one of the analogies that came to mind when you were describing what it's like to get, you know, a trending topic with 2,000 people who are talking about it is kind of like we're all sitting in our homes and we have our own private robot that gives us information about the world at any minute. And that robot has is the only thing that's connected to the outside world and it's getting updates and it's filtering that based on, you know, things that will make us happy or that we'll respond to. It, it has a very specific objective. And that objective isn't necessarily aligned with what you want. Or maybe it is, but maybe not what you need. Or were there two different terms for what you want right now? That's versus an like interesting I question, right? Idealized self versus, you know, what you actually want in this very second, right? This was, I think, uh, Cass Sunstein did a bunch of work on that, asking, you know, the kind of question of paternalism. Do you give people the donuts that they actually want, you know, Isn't or that do you put the, the salad in front of them? So I do want to talk about that. And uh, let me say one more thing and let's put a pin in it because I want to respond to a few things that you said so that we have them at least listed out. I think that I don't actually, I'm not a huge fan of social engineering. And let me go further because maybe a lot of people are also not huge fans, but they would say maybe we need to do it. I think that maybe in certain places it's appropriate, but I actually think that we should all have much more control over these technologies and the insights of behavioral science to use them to develop ourselves, our more idealized selves. So for example, I think you just said it, right? You said something like, I want a donut, right? Like, I love donuts. I love ice cream. I love anything with sugar in it, okay? Like, I want that right now. And if you put it right in front of me, I probably would grab it during the course of this interview and eat it even though that's not what I really want because I want to focus on talking to you. I don't want to get a sugar rush. I want to, I don't have my mouth to be full and things jump throwing out of it. And I don't want to get fat. So that's what I really want. But right now I want the donut. So I think that we have the tools. These tools can be used to help people live better lives, but they're not. They're being right. used to push people towards the commercial, most commercially expedient outcomes of the platforms that are built around this ad model. So that's a whole thing that we should talk about. Let's put a pin in that because I think it's important. Something else that just comes up and just I think is interesting philosophically to ask is one of the problems about having these conversations in the world we live in today is you need data more than ever because our subjective realities are swamping us. I think I have a probably far less accurate, objective view of the world than I would have had 20 years ago. So what I was going to say is it feels like the world's become more narcissistic, you know, and narcissism is good for the ad model. And I think that's kind of what's going on there. I'm just curious. I want to throw that out. And then you're thinking about decentralization. I just wanted to say, you know, decentralization has become such a buzzword and it really doesn't really mean anything anymore. <laughs> but I do agree that in order to have, a, and you know, the web was far more decentralized than it is now. You know, decentralization exists on a spectrum and at different places. I think the thing is you can't really have decentralization without consensus. And in this case, what we're talking about is consensus reality. Okay. Right. So like we can argue about whether there is an ontological reality. We're never going to agree on that. We're never going to find that out because we're approaching that from our own subjective view of the world, irrespective of whether we're on social media or not. But I think what we really mean when we talk about reality is consensus truth, consensus reality, the communally lived experience of what is real, so that if someone's running down the street butt naked saying there are aliens coming, you're like, well, that guy's out of his mind. We can all agree on that, but I can't prove it with logic necessarily, okay? I can't prove it philosophically, right? Because maybe he actually sees the aliens and the rest of us are totally blind. 
So I just wanted to kind of <laughs> list all those things out. Let's go to the top one because it sounded like you had something that you wanted to say about the private robot and that analogy. Yeah, sure. Your your social engineering. So I would say it's interesting because one thing that's really struck me again, I, I alluded to in 2015 talking about the recommendation engine. My experience, you know, I had a baby, my Facebook feed changed completely. And there's a reason for that, right? All of a sudden, I'm posting baby pictures. Facebook is processing those pictures. It knows that it's a baby, right? I am talking about my baby. The words, the text I'm using describe my baby. I'm talking about how my baby won't sleep. You know, <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, I, I had a kid and I had no friends around with kids and I'm pretty far from my family. And this, I think, is that that feeling of like social disconnect is very much a part of this. And so who do I turn to? Well, I turn to the internet. How do I find information? And so I'm communicating to Facebook. And then, of course, Instagram and Twitter and all the others work largely the same way. I'm communicating that I have this new interest. And in response to that, the recommendation engine sees an opportunity to start showing me new and different types of content. And this is advantageous for the platform because if I join new communities, you know, Facebook, we used to bring our social graph. You talk about the decentralized web. That's very true. Web 1.0, you know, everybody's on blogs, but, you know, it's hard to find stuff. It's hard to find your people. It's hard to find the, you know, you're relying on these kind of garbage search engines. If you are a blogger, nobody's really disseminating your stuff. You know, you're going through these complicated, like, blog blog roles and other ways to try to get your content out there. But what social media does is first it pulls everybody in with their real social graph. So these are people you actually know and your original community was probably people you knew in the real world. But as it kind of taps that out, it starts to show you new things, to push you new interests. So that is social engineering. So social engineering is foundational. It's more a question of how it's done that I think is interesting because for me, I found that recommendation that as a new mom, I should join anti-vaccine groups. I actually found it profoundly unethical. I'll be totally honest. And the reason was, is that at a time when I was really concerned, you know, about SIDS, right? You know, you spend your first six months of your kid's life hoping they don't die in the middle of the night, right? You know, when I was really concerned about, am I doing the right thing? Is my baby normal? You know, these basic, this period of like intense insecurity, what it pushes me is communities that are equally insecure, but are almost kind of self-radicalizing. I joined a couple of the groups because I wanted to see what you know, what is happening in here. And I, I created a whole separate account to go join them because I actually by this point didn't want it to kind of corrupt my, my main account experience. I was like, God, I'm going to reinforce the recommendation engine and tell it that this is in fact what I want to see, which in my day-to-day -day use of the platform was the farthest thing from the truth. But I did go and I created an account and I joined a lot of these groups. And what started to happen was that, you know, I got some great kind of visibility. I didn't engage. I just wanted to read. But I got some great visibility into the real deep fear that was pulling people in. The ad campaigns that Facebook was, you know, taking money from these groups as they wanted to promote themselves also were pictures of infants who died of SIDS and trying to make this connection, which is totally false, that the vaccines caused the SIDS deaths. And so there are people who are coming in, my God, I saw this ad, I need to know the truth, you know, is the government covering up the fact that vaccines cause SIDS? And it's really people who are deeply, deeply fearful, as I was, you know, and so I understand that from an empathetic point of view. And so my kind of like rage at the situation was not at the other moms or the people who were getting sucked into this. It was at what I saw as the the profiteers and two classes of profiteers. First, the platform, right? Why on earth are you accepting money to 
you know, to push this content out to people. It is so demonstrably false. And there were stories, you would see these horror stories in the groups in which babies would actually die because the parent had refused the vitamin K shot, because they had heard that a shot to prevent brain bleeds was really secretly a vaccine. And there would be these stories that would come out where children would be really harmed by the information that was moving through these groups. I can think of three or four particular cases that were heart-wrenching. And so I started writing about that. Is this the ethical choice? You can argue that it should stay on the platform, right? That, that these people have a community and there's nothing outside the norms of First Amendment discourse or anything else related to that community. But why are we pushing it to people? And that was, for me, this question of, you know, there's no neutral in an algorithmic recommendation. There's an incentive and there's a maximization function in which the platform is deciding that it is going to maximize your time on site by pushing you into a group that has hundreds of thousands of people that are highly active, that are talking all the time, and that are encouraging a particular type of, you know, do the research, investigate the truth. And what wound up happening with that account was that as I joined anti-vaccine groups, it started pushing me flat earth and chemtrails. And I thought, okay, you know, it is tied to the kind of pantheon of, you know, sort of pseudoscience topics. But then it started to push me Pizzagate. And then subsequently, about a year and a half later, QAnon. And so again, it was the fact that the recommendation engine was proactively, even I had never heard the term QAnon when it first pushed it to me. It was long before major media coverage of it. And I thought, my God, we have, we have this system that's just pushing this stuff out. There is no neutral. And so the question is, what is your maximization function? That actually, I think, is the question that we really need to be asking and interrogating here. Even as we talk about reactive moderation, the question is, what should we be pushing people into? And then the other point, because I feel like I've gone on you know, long enough in this answer, but the other point that you mentioned is this question of narcissism. And I think the other thing that was in that group that I found outrageous were the influencers. And these were the people who many times had no children. That was the thing that really kind of blew my mind about this, but who had found a community of people who were deeply fearful. They didn't want to vaccinate their kids. They no longer trusted the idea that they really came to believe that the government was covering up this conspiracy about MMR and autism. And so they would offer like, you can buy homeopathic vaccines on my website. You can visit my Amazon store and buy my, you know, my Kindle single or whatever kind of uh, media I've put out on this. And so there was like a financial, there was like a grift there. Oh, your kid has measles. Don't trust the government. Instead, take a whole lot of vitamin C, right? And by the way, I have this vitamin C up on my website and you can go buy it there. And it's the best vitamin C you're going to get because the Walgreens vitamin C is big pharma's vitamin C, you know, and, and it was just this grift. <laughs> I found it outrageous. So I felt like there were these two kind of financial motivations that were happening kind of behind the scenes that were powering so much of this ecosystem. And yet we were having a conversation about how to moderate it and what to show people that was almost entirely divorced from the underlying incentives. And this was the thing that I still, you know, I, again, acknowledge that there has been so much creep in arguments about how to moderate misinformation, while at the same time, I think my experiences in those groups really made me feel like we had really just kind of gone down the wrong path with a lot of what was recommended and curated. So again, so much to talk about. Let me focus on one thing here, a couple things. One, I think one of the things that we're starting to realize, if we haven't already, and I have, I mean, I'm sure you have just based on our conversation, is that our sense of reality is very fragile. It's much more fragile than we thought it was 20 years ago. And when I try and think about what is it that makes, so vaccines is a great example. Man, this has become such a political issue now, and it's become a way of signaling 
your level of stupidity, your level of conformity on both sides, right? So the right will see the quote left. Again, even this, this spectrum is difficult and I struggle to really understand what I'm talking about when I, when I say it, but the quote right sees the left as stupid for just believing whatever the government tells them. And if you believe whatever the government tells you, you're an idiot. And I agree with that. And if you're on the, the left and will look at the right and say, well, the right just doesn't believe anything the government says just because the government says it. And I agree, you're an idiot. If you just see anything that the government says and says, I'm just not going to believe that, it's disinformation, it's misinformation, you're also an idiot. And I didn't mean to insult anyone. I, anyway, it just, it kind of, that's me just, <laughs> honestly, that's just me being an emotional human being, just having an emotional reaction, not very constructive. But I think you understand what, what I'm sort of getting at. And what I really think is actually happening here, and I want to raise this for you and I wonder what you think about it. I really think that at the end of the day, what this really is about, it's not so much about epistemic frameworks. I feel like it's about power and about people's sense of power and people's sense of empowerment versus disempowerment. Because I feel like what the vaccines is really about is people that feel powerful in their lives maybe. Actually, maybe that's not even, a, I don't know, there's some truth to it. I mean, I know people that are very powerful who are just like, this is all, it's all a conspiracy. And there's a cult of blood-sucking Illuminati drinking the blood of young children on a Jeffrey Epstein's island. Maybe there's something like that going on too. I don't even know. And that just shows you like, even as I'm trying to talk about this and I'm trying to like really, I mean, I really want this to be a constructive conversation and to get to some coherent working model that we can move forward on. Even I actually struggle to do that in my response to you. But so like, I'm going to leave everything I just said there and you can respond to it however you like. And then maybe I want to just introduce something which I think is very important that you've talked about in your writing. It might've been a Wired article where you talked about this. It might've been the problem with misinformation. Was that the article or something like that? And you talked about the need for friction because this is the thing I really oh, want to- yeah. And so let's talk about friction. Let's talk about maximum. What would you call it? Maximalization function? Oh, maximum is uh, just they're trying to uh, optimize for a particular outcome. Right. So that's exactly, exactly the goal of the algorithm, so to speak. I, actually, those are the two things I want to talk about because optimization or optimizing the algorithm, the quote algorithm for a particular function is actually very powerful. And that leads to social engineering and all sorts of other things, not necessarily by design, all sorts of outcomes happen without intention. But friction is very interesting because friction leads to serendipity. Friction leads to convexity. It leads to outcomes that we hadn't intended. And it leads to a kind of a process that we can't fully understand, but which leads to, in our experience, a kind of consensus, a kind of truth or truthiness that people seem to feel more comfortable with. And and I'd love for you to expound on what, what I just said, because I'm, I'm using your framework of friction, but why don't you pick up where, where I kind of left off as best as I could? Yeah, it's a great question, I think. So the arguments for friction ask the question, how should we think about virality? But before I address that, I want to mention one thing that, that you also noted, which is you said you think it's about power. I think it's about power. And I do think that, you know, the book that I'm working on argues that it's about influence, which is a form of power, right? Influence enables you to, to achieve a particular aim in the world and, you know, or to push things in your direction. And so this relationship between influence and power, I think, is, is pretty central. But as far as, again, that, that's the sort of motivation of the people at, you know, the people who are what I would possibly call um, the steerers, the drivers of narratives, right? I want a particular outcome. Here is how I'm going to work this crowd. And that's not 
new in society, right? We, you know, we, the term propaganda, I feel like has fallen out of favor. It's also a very politicized term, but the idea that you could propagate a message that you could persuade a crowd, influence a crowd, make people believe a certain thing, and then, you know, kind of take action about it in the world. This existed in many, many, many prior media environments, right? And we've also had very, very fragmented media environments in the past. The age of the printing press was, you know, these sorts of pamphleteering wars that happened as people tried to figure out what was true or not true. And so there was always, you know, there have been moments in history where we've had that fragmentation. But power is one thing. In order to have influence, right, you have to have trust. And that's foundational. And so this, again, social science research going back decades, many, many prior media environments. And people listen to or believe those that they trust. And so that, I think, is the thing that the hyperpolarization of social media has really created a very deep fragmentation, not so much in media. We can't all go see what the media has to say, but whether you believe the media. And by media, I want to say I'm not talking about mainstream media. I think we have this weird you know, <laughs> dichotomy that's presented where influencers who have 2 million Twitter followers are somehow mm. portray themselves as like well, not and they lo- the And they love that. That's you know? a big part. Just by the way... <laughs> And that's bullshit. Yeah, (laughs) total bullshit. And same thing in politics, right? When politicians say, I'm an outsider, I'm not in politics, and they're like the most political person in the world. (laughs) Same thing. Yeah, that is the thing that drives me absolutely crazy. And like you have 2 million Twitter followers. You might not call yourself media, but you're like a media of one in terms of your reach and your Also an interesting thing, and I I want you to continue, but also there is a kind of, uh, ironically, a kind of playing the victim card. People that have like so many followers, like I'm a victim, I'm being silenced by the mainstream media, but I'm getting the message out and we're going to, the classic example of this has always been Alex Jones. We did an episode on Alex Jones. I've talked about this. I went down the rabbit hole of watching tons of Alex Jones content after the 2008 financial crisis. But that's a classic example where Alex has an enormous amount of influence, an enormous amount of reach, but he's constantly playing the victim. And this is to varying degrees with people that take the sort of countercultural anti-establishment position. Right. And I think, you know, there comes to be a bit of an identity around it. And that's because you do get positive reinforcement and you do, particularly again, when I mentioned the the sort of disconnectedness, you know, I found the mom groups really helpful at a time in my life when I didn't know what I was doing and didn't have any friends in similar circumstances. There are a lot of really great things that have come out, you know, come from the internet. There are these like rare disease support groups where people find each other. There's people interested in particular fandoms, you know, movies, arcane cultural things that they kind of find their way to. And so I want to be just (laughs) note very clearly that I'm not some like Luddite who thinks that social media is terrible, but it is that question of trust and that fragmentation of trust. And then the identity that comes around, that forms around being a member of a particular community. It takes a lot, I think, a lot of strength and a lot of courage to say, I think my community is wrong about this particular thing. I am Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with this. It's easier to not say anything. And again, to this sort of false consensus, speaking of consensus, that I think forms around that is the idea that what you see expressed by the loudest voices who are not all institutional media today does really have an impact in the opinions that people form about the world. And then even if they are perhaps on the fence about it, this ties back to the very, very first part of our conversation. If you express the thing that is counter to the values of the community that you've set yourself up into, you risk a kind of ostracization, but one that happens in a very public way. And that's where the harassment mobs kind of come back into the conversation. You know, you express something that perhaps deviates from your particular community's opinions about a particular thing. It's easier to stay quiet and not attract that kind of harassment, not attract that kind of brigading, because really, as everybody has seen, you know, these sort of cautionary tales, do you want to be the main character of the internet today? 
why on earth would you want to speak up? And so in a way, the ecosystem that we've developed reinforces a form of ideological conformity within the group that I think is actually really terrible. And I'll say um, I follow a few people who I've come to know personally who are much more on the, you know, kind of right, what I'd say like right wing, not even center right, not even moderate right. And I've seen some of them try to push back a little bit about, against sort of the most excessive opinions, you know, sometimes around the January 6th hearings and things like this. And I'm tempted to like, like the tweet, <laughs> but then I also know that I'm not doing them any favors, you know, because then like some lefty lib from Stanford is liking their tweet. And so what does that say about them? What does that say about their opinion when somebody on the other side actually agrees with it? And we, you know, we put ourselves, I shouldn't spend this much time thinking about this stuff, but people will literally go through your likes to try to find evidence of like ideological deviance to <laughs> to like shame you among your own community, which I think is what people are actually afraid of, not so much the other community. So when you have high profile influencers who are really reinforcing a particular framework, this is what it means to be a good conservative, this is what it means to be a good liberal, et cetera, et cetera. I think that visibility is actually really toxic. And I, I don't actually know what we do about that. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that in the second hour, Renee. I also want to mention something that popped in my head, which is, you know, Richard Nixon constantly felt like he was a victim. He was a victim of the press. He was a victim of the sort of the Harvard establishment. He was president of the United States. He was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful person in the world, and he felt that way. So I think there's something interesting about that, too. I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a, a social media thing. Not that you were saying that. I was just kind of thinking it through. Well, it gives people a mission, though, right? That That's the thing that um, I think that people are often at this point quite devoid of something that, you know, provides them with meaning, right? This is something where totally. many people have written about this in the context of like bowling alone and some of these other, you know, kind of they're removed from community and they also don't have a, a mission. Not you know, they don't feel they're not goal oriented in their lives. And so when you become part of an online community that gives you not only the validation of finding people like you and realizing that you've kind of found your people, but also has a mission, which is there's that other group of people over there and we don't like them and we're going to spend a lot of time fighting with them. Then all of a sudden you have an adversary, you have an opponent, there's something to do. And again, I feel that on an empathetic level, you know, when we were in California asking the question of should we strengthen vaccine requirements in schools, I was very, very involved in that political campaign because I really believed in it. And I will say that I felt like there was a goal that I was working towards and something that I felt would be helpful for my children, right? And so that's where you see the the rise of online activism. It's because it gives people a direction. And it's hard to, you know, I think I don't really feel morally equipped to say this direction is good and that direction is bad because this is where the subjectivity comes into play. But I am consistently interested in people who have a very, very they're really kind of like Twitter brawlers about particular issues. Mm -hmm. They really deeply care about a particular issue. But if you ask them, you know, what have you done to change this in your community? What is the policy you have put forth? What is the curriculum you have put forth? What is the positive change that you want to make in the world? There's a feeling that they're not actually empowered to do that. So being mad on social media provides them a sense that they are doing something. They're yelling at other people, you know? <laughs> and so it turns into almost this... We used to call it like clicktivism, right? Like you would like click your thing instead of actually going out and voting or whatever. I think that that's really core to it, that sense of validation and mission that a lot of these conflicts and culture war in particular gives to people. And, and I wish that there were more outlets for something positive, again, in the real world and everyday life to kind of minimize the 
the thrill and value that, that people get from this. Well, I, I think that's great. And I, and I want to use this opportunity to move us to the second part of our conversation, Renee. But I think that, again, that speaks to power, which is that social media gives people a false sense of power. You have the power to yell. You have the power to congregate into a mob. But that's not actually real power. It doesn't, it's not constructive power. I want to also say that I just want to you know make one point about the vaccines just to kind of, oh, and also Rebecca Goldstein, who was on, I mean, there are a lot of guests that have come on the show where we've talked about the meaning crisis in one way or another, but we did one really great episode on this about moral philosophy with Rebecca Goldstein. And I love that episode that I think was 60 something. So people can go check that out. It's a really great conversation. I love Rebecca. So vaccines is a good example of something though that I want to bring up because I want to touch on vaccines. I want to touch on misinformation and specifically foreign disinformation before we move into the second hour, because I think that's where I want to kind of take us next. The vaccines, look, I haven't sat down to really like map this out in a way that makes me feel comfortable, but I was one of those people who felt like there was a lot of stuff that came out of the official institutional bodies that was kind of all over the map. And really there was a lot of people weren't properly held accountable. We did an episode with Matt Ridley and Alina Chen, for example, on the lab leak hypothesis. I remember when that first came out, people were, again, like people got banned for that, I believe. Same thing with stuff on the masks, et cetera. I was one of those people who I did eventually take a regular double dose of the vaccine. I didn't do it right away. I remember I was on a, a podcast with a guest who rushed to get one right when it came out and she said she's felt a sense of relief. And I was like, I don't even know. I mean, I would not go rush out and get a vaccine. I'll, I'll let you rush out and get the vaccine. I was like, I'm going to take some time, talk to some doctors, think it through, and then I'll go get the vaccine if I feel like I'm going to get it. And I don't want anyone to pressure me to get it. And there was all this, again, misinformation also coming out of institutional bodies or people who were kind of in those positions talking about natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity, whether or not you were protecting other people by getting the vaccine, et cetera. I did not get the booster. I have no intention to get the booster. I also got sick, et cetera. I've really taken a responsible approach, as responsible as I could. And ultimately, I relied on doctors in my own world to make a decision about what I'm going to do. And I think the vaccine is a great example where lots of people on the left really just got this wrong, left and right. And people on the right, I think, also whether some of the more radical voices that are kind of pointing to mRNA technology run amok on your cells and blah, 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 whether they're proven correct in the end, I don't know, because the reality is you do need longitudinal studies for these. But I will say that a lot of those people really don't exercise epistemic humility at all. And there are activists, for example, that guy, Peter McCullough, that was on Joe Rogan's podcast, that guy was an activist. He's not a doctor. He, he also has a medical degree, but I'm not going to listen to that guy because it's very clear he had an agenda. To, so I think there's a whole world there and it's very difficult to try and navigate that center line as I try and do on this show on everything, including vaccines. But I wanted to put it out there because it's such a divisive issue and I wanted people to have a sense of kind of where I come from on it. Russian disinformation is a huge one. You don't know this probably, yeah. but some of our audience members know this. I had a television show on RT over 10 years ago. I started about 10 years ago. I produced the program. I got out, I left the network right after, right around the time post the Syria invasion, but uh, right around 2013 for reasons that were related to personnel issues. I had an issue with kind of the management and the direction of the company, et cetera. What I wanted to say here is important because as someone that I really feel like I can speak to this issue because I've actually worked with inside of Russia today. And I was one of those people who had become kind of radicalized after the 2008 financial crisis because so much of my world 
had been assaulted as a result of how the establishment dealt with the crisis, how it rewarded so many of the people that participated and got rich on it, and how we're living with the consequences of yeah. their complicity. And so I became, I went down the rabbit hole of Alex Jones. I, I mean, all the way, I went all the way up to David Icke and I kind of just stayed there for a little bit, hung out, and I dropped back down to some <laughs> something below lizards. You know, when I was working at RT, uh, one of the things that, first of all, I loved their branding when I yeah. got into it. And I also love the fact that they were counterculture and that they were pushing back against a lot of the narratives that were such, I thought were, you know, a lot. they were kind of in, in a sense, bullshit. A lot of these narratives, there was some truth, there was some fiction, et cetera. And their, their tagline at the time was question more. And I was like, well, that's great. I mean, who, who doesn't want to question more? And even when I was at RT, I used to say to people, like, first of all, I did have a lot of it. I didn't have a political show at RT. I had an economics program, and I would never have had a political show at RT because even then it was very clear that I would have been uncomfortable with their political agenda or with propagating a program from that point of view. And so I, I never felt like they really exercised editorial oversight over me. And there wasn't a clear editorial agenda that I was able to really identify at the time other than don't just don't say anything bad about Putin and Russia and don't say anything bad about China. That was very clear, although they didn't say it explicitly. But what I've come to understand in the years since, and I would point to one really great episode that we did on this with Peter Pomerantsev, who wrote a book, Nothing is True But Everything is Possible, and also This is it's Not Propaganda, book. phenomenal book. Both yeah, of his books great are great, writer. but that book is phenomenal, and he really nailed it is that Russian disinformation operates by making you question everything. That's the whole thing. Question more, question everything. Don't believe anything. And I remember being in an editorial meeting one time with the head of the company and or the head of the RT America. The head of the company was actually, I forget her name now. But anyway, he, and he said, you know, well, how do we know that? Well, well, maybe. What do we, there's always another side to the story. And I think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't really understand because also the left went with their hair on fire. They leaned to the whole Trump thing. They lost so much credibility and rightfully so and tried to make everything about Russia, which is why Trump's Russia, Russia, Russia thing resonated so, with so many you know, normally brained people. But what a lot of people don't recognize is that Russian disinformation is 100% real. And these platforms are like ground zero for the information war and everyone's fighting it. And I don't really know how we get to a place where, and this is a question also about not just epistemic truth, but also our normative, our values, what we value, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys here? Because yes, our government does exercise disinformation, misinformation abroad. It does propagate stories domestically in order to achieve its political objectives. And so one, we have to be able to also juxtapose like, what's worse, what they're doing, what we're doing. Well, who are we? What are our values? And like, so I think that's a very complicated conversation to have. And we are rightfully having it because our institutions have failed us in many important ways. And I've always pointed to 2003, the Iraq war, the lies that got us into the war and the 2008 financial crisis, two really systemic crises or two um, earthquakes in American political life and culture that have led us to where we are today. Renee, I like I said, I, I uh, <laughs> now I did what you did, but you're you've. Uh, yeah. I was taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me let me try to. Wait, no, no, some, no. I'm um, going to move us now to the second hour, so because we don't take okay. we don't take advertisers here. We are not pushing advertisers. So, for anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. We don't accept advertisers or commercial sponsors. The entire show is funded from top to bottom by listeners like you. 
If you want access to the second hour of today's conversation with Renee, as well as the episode transcripts, intelligence reports, and if you're interested in joining the conversation on our Hidden Forces Genius community, head over to hiddenforces.io and check out our episode library. You can also become a premium subscriber today. Renee, stick around. We're going to move the second part of our conversation onto the premium feed. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to full episodes, transcripts, and intelligence reports, which include additional notes, resources, links, and other material that will help you get the most out of each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website at hiddenforces.io slash subscribe. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation on Twitter at hiddenforcespod or send me an email at info at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.